0: Uh, if you're with us for the first time again, I can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, we, uh, we've been working our way through um, a, a number of passages in the Gospel of Mark, and so if you have a Bible with you, you can open it to Mark chapter 12. Uh, if you don't have a Bible today, uh, we'll, we'll, we do have the words up there, although they are apparently microscopic. Uh, I don't know who's, who's in charge of slides around here. That's me. Um, but um if you don't have a bible and you and you want one and you don't really maybe want to buy one you kind of want to test one out for a minute we've got some for you on our outside table there Uh, it's in the version that i preach from and read from the english standard version um so those are yours for the taking If, if you'd like to take one of those if you want to buy your own uh nice leather bound one or something uh english standard version is what we use here and recommend and encourage it's a it's a good English translation. It's it's um, faithful to the to the text and it's readable in our context. But uh, we've been looking at a number of encounters in Mark's gospel. Um, today we are going to look at um, the third and final question uh, that the religious leaders posed to Jesus. Uh, last week uh, we talked about um, what did we talk about last week? Uh, we talked about uh, he, oh the, the the question of. Um, where were we last week, guys? Who was here? Yes. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I promise. I, I prepare for these sermons and I don't dump them, but let's be honest, I got to preach another one. So <laughs> last week, we addressed that question uh, that, that that young religious ruler had of what must I do to inherit eternal life. And this week, uh, another question is going to be uh, posed to Jesus. Let me kind of just set the, the stage for you. I don't know if you're the de- debating. T- debating type of person, kind of argumentative, uh, but we're actually coming right in the middle of a quarrel. Um, I had mentioned last week, I do remember this, I had mentioned last week that the entire movement of Mark's gospel is now headed towards Jerusalem. And so uh, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem because that's where the Messiah will redeem his people. And so as we show up in the text today, we are already in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem was the epicenter of religious activity for the Jewish people, right? This is where they did all of their religious uh, worship services and all of the sacrificial system was performed at the temple. And so that's where we find ourselves today in, in a, it's actually a group of religious leaders, uh, but our text today actually pulls out one of them, one scribe who has this one question of Jesus. And so that's where we jump in today. So we're in chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. I'm going to read down through verse 34. So this is the word of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbors as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the living God. Let's go to him in prayer and ask him to help us understand it. Father, we come to you now as... As beggars who are hungry, uh, we come empty-handed, we come with all of the things that fill our lives and are are crying for our attention, and we ask that You would remove those so that we can hear Your Word today. Lord, would You, by Your Spirit, uh, work in our hearts so that we might understand this text and that we might be changed by it. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen uh i make no assumption uh preaching in a in a a church particularly a young church like this that everybody knows all kinds of things about christianity and so i don't make that assumption Uh, but i do know this about humanity in general and it is this that that we are wired in a certain way namely we are wired for love Uh, we're wired to not only receive love but to give love and regardless of your familiarity with Christianity, you know this, that, that it has, on some level, something to do with God's love. Right? Well, if, you've, if you've lived in America for any amount of time, you've come across some Christian that has told you about God's love. And if you're here today as a Christian, you know what God's love is about. And uh, if you're also a human, which I think all of us here are, we've identified that, clearly, Adam, um, but we're all, we're all human... Uh, but, but we also know the struggle that love is, right? Love is hard, and love is real, and it's, it's hard to not only receive it, but it's certainly hard to give it, particularly to those who don't seem worthy of love. Um, and so the question that comes to my mind as I, as I think through a passage like this and as I think through the way we're wired is, if, if God made us that way, if we were made to love, why is it so hard to do it? Why as people do we struggle with love um, I quote C.S. Lewis fairly often. I've quoted him a good bit in my first bunch of sermons. But I love this. Um, there's a, a little section in one of C.S. Lewis's books. The book's called The Four Loves. And he talks about four different types of love. He talks about affection, friendships, like romantic love. And then he talks about God's love. Um, but in the beginning of that book, he's just talking about the nature of love. And I think this really kind of pinpoints the point I'm trying to make. So it, listen, listen to how he writes about love. C.S. Lewis says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And so why is loving so hard? Because it makes us vulnerable. It makes us open and susceptible to brokenness and to heartache. You see, this passage brings us to what it means to love both God and each other. And when we talk about this, it brings us face to face, face to face with our greatest fear, namely rejection. So today as we look at this, we're gonna see that um, loving God with all of our being, and loving people the way that we love ourselves, is the great command over our lives. But as we look at this passage we're going to see that jesus shows us the only way for us to fulfill this is to know that we cannot love like this on our own it cannot be done and so though that sounds like terrible news today the good news is that when we find the love of god who jesus perfectly loved in the way that he's calling us to love only then can we be free to vulnerably love others. And so, here's what I'm going to do. I I preach points here, so I'm I'm kind of an outline guy, but we're going to look at two things um, today in this passage. First, we're going to look at uh, hearing the command in verses 28 to 31, and then secondly, we're going to look at uh, doing the command in verses uh, 32 down to the end there. So let's first consider hearing the command. Um, So, if you've, uh, again, been around Christianity, you've heard a lot of cliches, right? You've heard things, if, if you're on Facebook, you saw my Facebook post this week asking for some of those cliches that you've heard. So there, there are many cliches out there, some of them being, you know, God never gives us more than we can handle, or, um, you know, perhaps, uh, you know... Uh, I, 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 there were so many this week. If you follow my Facebook post, it was outrageous. It, it almost I almost had to take it down. It got, it got heated on there. People were putting all of these things that people heard it, you know, like, you know, God never meant this for you to, to happen to you or God has a plan. All these things that, that good meaning Christians like you and like me have probably said and with good intentions, you know, had, uh, they, they don't always work that way. Well, I, I think today's passage actually can be one of those. When talking to perhaps someone that's not a Christian, you just say, you know, what's Christianity about? Well, just love God and love people. Right? it's that easy. Just love God, love people, and the rest, is, the rest is just really easy. Well, as we hear this command, we're going to see that it's so much more than, than a simple cliche to be followed. Um, the, the question of this, this one scribe, again, remember, this was a group of religious men. These men were raised in the Torah, the law, the, the Judaism of the Old Testament. They knew their Bibles really well. And so this one man comes out from that group and he poses this question to Jesus. And the question is this in verse 28, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, in order for us to understand this, you have to know kind of this, this background of the Old Testament that, that the commandments were more than just the top ten. I, I always talk about the top ten, right? The, 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 the ten commandments, the big ten that are listed there in the Old Testament a couple times in Deuteronomy, also in Exodus. They're more than that. In fact, in the Old Testament, there were 613 commandments that was required of a practicing Jew to fulfill now 365 of those commands were things that you ought to do or ought not to do so don't do this don't do this don't do this and 248 of those commands were things that you ought to do so you should do this love the sojourner do all of these things and so the the law was rather extensive and this man comes up to jesus who was a jewish rabbi he knew the law um and he comes up and he poses this question that would have been common basically saying what is this great command the most important of all and what he's not saying is which one's the best one he's not looking for like jesus pick out the the best most important actually the way the text reads if even in your english you can see it the last word is all so the all isn't referring to the commandments it's kind of this transcending idea in other words he's saying what is the law that transcends over everybody what is the great law? And Jesus summarizes it. He summarizes it by quoting the Bible. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it's the great Shema. Now, if, you're a Jew, if you had a Jewish background, you would know this passage. In fact, this passage was so familiar to the Jews, it was recited morning and evening. It was the great mantra of their faith. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one and he goes on to say you know you are to love the lord your god with all your heart soul uh strength in fact jesus adds the mind we'll talk about that in a minute but but what he's doing here is he's he's going exactly where this scribe expected him to go the great shema but then he goes on and he adds the second part of it he says a second one is like this loving your neighbor as yourself that came from leviticus chapter 19 and so what is what is this command that he's he's telling us here i mean if you think about it, I mean oftentimes we don't go into the depth of it but but Jesus breaks this down and he quotes the, the Old Testament He says, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength the with and the all is everything in that passage in other words it's not it, it, it's, it's this coming from everything that you are it is it is the all-inclusive, the exhaustive person is to love the Lord. He talks about the heart. Now, again, from an Old Testament context, the heart was the center of the person. It wasn't just the physical heart. It was the emotional seat. It was the, the thing from which everything in our lives extends. So, our emotions. We're to love the Lord with that. We're to love the Lord with our soul. That's the, the spirit, the spiritual we're to love the Lord with that. Jesus adds here with our mind. We're to love the Lord with our intellect. What it is we think and know. And we're to love the Lord with our strength. That word actually has... It's the physical. It's actually the bowels, the inside of us. Everything that we are is to love the Lord our God. That is the great command. And so that is... That, that's intense already. But Jesus adds on to it a second one, and he says, the second one is this, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. So, in other words, what Jesus is doing is connecting our love for God with our love for each other, that if we have a love for God like that, it will naturally overflow into love for others, okay? So, th- this is what he's explaining the command to be. He's showing us that, that, that love for God and love for neighbor go hand in hand. Well, well for the Jewish person, who was their neighbor? Well, their neighbor actually historically was themselves. It was fellow Jews. It never extended to the Gentile world. And what we're going to see Jesus doing is actually showing us that it extends more to that. If, if you've read any of the New Testament, you're familiar with the Good Samaritan, right? That, that passage where the, the, the question is asked of Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he talks about the, the, the Samaritan and the Samaritans were, were the hated people. Uh, enemies, the foes as it were, of the Jewish people. And so Jesus, he extends this idea of neighbor to beyond people that are like us, beyond people that live like us, that look like us, that act like us, even that think like us. Jesus opens that door wide and he begins to show us what true love for God and true love for neighbor is. And so hearing this command should actually feel rather heavy if you're hearing what i'm trying to communicate and what jesus is telling us rightly you should be a little overwhelmed if you hear this command and you think well i think i do love the lord with all my heart soul mind and strength and i think i do love my neighbor like that then then you're not hearing the command right the command is weighty it's heavy it's overwhelming in fact it's impossible It puts us in this grand indictment that if this is the the, the banner of what I'm supposed to live under, then what help do I have? This is not a Christian cliche that's easily fulfilled. Love God and love your neighbor and the rest will be fine. It's a heavy command. But the good news is, is, is hearing how we actually do the command and the man's response. So let's consider secondly doing the command as we look at the man's response in verses 32 to 34. I want you to think about um, a time in your life where there has been something presented to you that was impossible. It was seemingly impossible. And, And I'm not talking about like hard things that you could really do yourself, like perhaps a marathon. That may seem impossible to some of you. In fact, it is to most of us. But I'm talking about something that was just insurmountable, whether it be a task at work or a, a, a relationship that you, you, you see, there's no way for this to be mended, or a, a financial system or a financial um, circumstance where you just there's just no way out of this. This thing is impossible, and whatever that is in your mind, whether you're able to come up with it on the spot like that, when we are faced with something impossible like that, we usually have one of two ways we go. One of those ways is the way of de- despair. Right? We, we have this despairing attitude like, whoa, I cannot do it. It's impossible. There's no way, so I'm not even going to try. It's, it, there, there's nothing I can do about this. There's the way of despair. But the, the second way that we go is we go into desperate activity. Right? If you're a doer, you're like, okay, we're going to make this happen. You know, you're a go-getter. You're the type A. You're like, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We're going to get this done. Uh, for me, um, the situation that came to my mind when I asked that question was actually planting a, a new church. I um, love sharing stories about how we got started, but um, you'll get snippets, you know, as we go through the life of the church together, but, but when I sensed God calling us to start a new church, I was rather excited about it. Um, most of our family thought we were fairly crazy. They still do, I think. Um, it was the impossible task. It, it really was. This is, some, this is not something a man can do. Uh, this is not something a group of people can do. This is something God must do. Um, But early on, um, before we got to Albuquerque, in fact, that was the hardest part. This was the impossible part, was the getting to Albuquerque part. Um, It was like the uphill battle, it was the impossible. And I am the the desperate activity guy, you know? I am the, I'll do everything I can, you can't tell me no, I will make this happen. And we just kept hitting just roadblocks and roadblocks and roadblocks and it was hard. And, you know, certainly God calls us to push through and to do those things. But it was in those moments of impossibility where what I did was not sought my own activity or despaired in distress. What I did was I sought an advocate. I I sought God's help, right? I mean, the simplicity of of kind of Christian life is I said, God, you have to do this. And it was in those moments of advocacy where, where somebody was going ahead of us that we saw God working in amazing ways doors were opened and the barriers were overcome and so you know i've just laid jesus really has just laid out this impossible command on us it it should be a little heavy right now like i cannot do this command jesus and i think some of us despair in that way but i think others of us just say things like well if i could just you know do a little better in this love department I, i think i could love god more you know, I think I could love him with my heart, kind of seek him out with my heart and my, my soul be a little more spiritual. I mean, I am at church after all. You know, my mind, maybe I'll read the Bible some more or understand theology some more. My strength, maybe I'll serve the Lord by going to the gym and taking better care of my body. Whatever that sounds like in your life. If only I could do more, then God would smile on me. Then God would accept me. Um, if only I could give more, sacrifice more than God would be pleased you know what Jesus the way he used the law here and the way he used the law in all kinds of places Sermon on the Mount in other interactions with religious people was this he always used the law in order to show us our need for a better law keeper he always used the law in order to show us our inability to keep it on our own strength and that's exactly what he's doing here And so, the good news, you know, the first first part of the command is really bad news because we can't do it, but the good news is actually hidden in this man's answer. Look with me at the bottom, at the end of verse 33, if you have your Bibles with you. He just repeats Jesus. He says, you're right, teacher. Well, how kind of this guy. He, He affirmed the teacher's saying, you're right, teacher. And then he goes on to repeat what he says, but at the very end, he adds this statement, Uh, He says, all these things are right and it is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So this man began to get an understanding that God required more of him than he could actually offer. This man's reference to the whole sacrifices was to the sacrificial system that God had put in place for people to be right with him. The killing of animals in the temple, namely through one man, the high priest, who would go in and represent God's people, make the offerings, and they'd be acceptable until they had to do it again and again and again and again. It was the temporary system. But what this man is beginning to be keenly aware of is that the law was not enough for him, is that those temporary sacrifices would never satisfy forever. And so here this man begins to understand, and he begins to to open this door towards a permanent acceptance with God through another sacrifice, right? He he begins to open this door towards what Jesus is heading towards. He's heading towards Jerusalem to die on a cross as the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, slain for God's people. And so fulfilling this command, what does it look like? Well, it looks like Jesus' life. What does it look like to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself? Read about Jesus. He did it. You see, the way that Jesus loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength was that he perfectly obeyed his will. And God's will was that the the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, eternal, living with him forever, would come become a man, thus submitting to God's law. All 613 of those commandments, Jesus kept. All of them. He did not falter at any one point. He sustained the law. He perfectly fulfilled what it meant to love the Lord our God with all of his heart, soul, mind and strength. And then how did he go on to love his neighbor as himself? I mean, many people will point to the, the wonderful, compassionate ministry of Jesus. And, and yes, he was a very compassionate man. He healed the sick. He, he healed the hurting. He, he comforted the, the broken in spirit. But more so than that, the way that Jesus loved his neighbor as himself was he was willing to die for them. And the death of Jesus, though, oftentimes we highlight the, the physical excruciating pain, and, and that is exactly what it was. It was so much more than that. You see, Jesus satisfied all of the demands of God's law for you. You know, James, the author in the New Testament, talks about how if you stumble at any one point in the law, you're, you're guilty of all of it. And so none of us would be so presumptuous as to think that we've kept the law loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving the neighbors ourselves. But Jesus willingly went to the cross and died in our place so that we could have life permanently in Him. Listen, if you've heard this passage preached, I'm going about it perhaps in a completely different way. This passage is not calling us to fixate ourselves on our love for God. Rather, it's calling us to fixate ourselves on God's love for us. Because when you begin to be overwhelmed and washed by the grace that's found in the good news of Jesus, then and only then will you be able to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbors as yourself. And so that's the way of paradox here is that that Jesus is using this law to stir up our love for God and for others because of what He's done for us, not what we've done for Him. Um... The fuel for, for keeping this command in our own lives is, is only found in the gospel. If your prayer life is primarily about your love for God, which, which is a wonderful thing to cry out about, like we love the Lord our God, we want to talk about our love for Him, but if your prayer life is primarily communicating how much you love God and not rejoicing in how much He has loved you, your prayer life will run dry. If your worship life, whether it be corporately in this context, I'll just kind of hinder on that for a minute. If your worship life corporately, all of your singing, your praying, the reading, the preaching, is primarily about your love for God and not God's love for you, your worship will run dry. God's love never will. And that, friends, is how the overflowing of this law comes into our lives. Listen. Loving God and loving people is not the gospel. The gospel is that a loving God loved people who did not love him. That's the gospel. And when that begins to grip our hearts in new and fresh ways, only then will we be able to love the Lord our God in the way that Jesus is calling us to do that. So then, in light of that, in light of this perspective on a passage like this, How now shall we live in light of this truth? How does this change anything about us? Let me just kind of just hinder on the the two points that Jesus gave, loving God and loving people, what that might look like for us. Loving God begins by knowing God. Not just knowing about God, but knowing God. Uh, Regardless of what your faith background is, The radical idea that you can know this God really and personally should be life-shattering. The fact that, that Jesus calls us not only to have right thinking and right belief and right doctrine, all of those things are important. Jesus never negated that, but he never left it there. It was never just about knowing about God. It always flowed into praising who God is. And so, I would put it this way, you know, our theology, what we believe, should always flow into our doxology, or how we praise. You know, those are kind of these big, chunky words that we use, but, but what we believe influences how we worship, and it always will. Loving our neighbors begins by knowing our neighbors. This, this conviction fell over me a couple years ago that, that, you know, we hear pastors as Christians like this and we say, you know, love your neighbor and you ask yourself, well, who's the neighbor? Well, everybody's our neighbor, right? And that's generally true, it is. God wants us to love all kinds of people everywhere. But when we put that generalization of everyone's our neighbor, you know who becomes our neighbor? Nobody. Nobody's our neighbor then. And so let's, let's hone this in a little bit Let's just make this super super fleshy and super unspiritual. Who is your neighbor literally? Do you know? Like literally, who lives next door to you? Now, if you live in my context, that's the land of of, you know, prefabricated boxes where we all kind of live in the same house, we love to live life apart from neighboring, right? You just go home, you shut that garage. Most people park out of their garage these days. I don't understand that. But we go home, we shut the door, we do life. And then we go back into the city, we do life, we come back. And we we don't know anything about anybody. We don't know how to be neighbors anymore. And I try to break that mold. I am that guy who will make eye contact with you in the driveway. I will do that. If I see you coming home from work, you are liable to be in a conversation with me. (laughs) And listen, that's not just a pastor thing. I mean, I think that's supposed to be all of us. But I think that's how neighboring starts, is yes, it's general. Yes, love everybody, but but do we know our neighbors? And, you know, that is the great witness of the gospel of Jesus. Um, You know, the gospel didn't just start with Jesus. Uh, The good news about him coming actually has been the very start of God's plan from the very beginning. I just kind of want to allude to this in, in closing today. In Genesis chapter 12, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, the 12th chapter in, you know, this is hundreds of years in, but uh, God chose one man, his name was Abraham, to be the forefather of our faith, okay? He chose this one man, he was really old and he was out in the middle of nowhere, and he gave this man a promise. And part of that promise was that he would not only bless his family, but that his family would be a blessing to the nations in Genesis chapter 12. And so from the very beginning of God's promise, the plan has been for God's people to bless the world. For God's people to know their neighbors and to love them well. And so in Genesis chapter 12, and now in Mark chapter uh, 12, convenient, uh, Jesus is commending that to his people. This is what it means to be my people, to be a blessing to the world. Listen, um, a commandment like this can be overwhelming, and it could be... um, lofty and theoretical but that's not what jesus would have for us when when we begin again to feel the weight of the command and to see it lifted off of us because what jesus has done for us we're then free to love the world we're free to love god and free to love the world Um, i'll I'll, kind of just close with this reference in in one of those songs we sang i think it was our second song let us love and sing and wonder um, it's a song of john newton one of, those, one of the phrases in that song, it says that, uh, talking about Jesus' work for us, it says that He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Do you today know and believe that Jesus did that for you? That Jesus hushed the loud thunder of this command and quench the the flame of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where God's law was given. And in doing so, you are free to now live the way God always wanted you to live, namely under his law and for the good of the world. And so that's what it means to be a Christian under this command, is to see it through the gospel, to let it overflow into our lives, and that it might even go into our neighbor's house. May that be true of us as a church. Let it be so. Let's pray. our Father in heaven, how marvelous are your ways. Jesus, he silenced the naysayers. Uh, They were looking to to trick him in this question, and and he answered it with perfection. And um, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that you are a God who actually requires more than sacrifice for us. You require perfection, and Jesus satisfied that for us. And so, Lord, I pray that today in our hearts that you, would, that you would give us new perspective on your law and that you would give us new perspective on what it means to love you, um, our Lord, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Would you do that? Would you work these truths into our hearts and into our church uh, so that the world might be changed through them? We ask these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen.